I love though that you even kind of have brought up gender and scent because I think it's so fascinating that like learning that cologne really is just kind of this masculine identifier or to like just not say you have perfume on and it kind of reminds me of like how now there's all like the male the male scented sections of bath and body works or right there's these men's line for shampoo even and it's like wait but this is it's still perfume. I don't, yeah it's still perfume cologne, and, means, cologne means like a concentration of scent it does not mean man perfume it yes. means how much scent is in the perfume Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So I'm so excited to return to Dark Academia meets Murder Mystery meets so many novels we've had on this podcast. So add this to your next read because you have to. After you listen to Laura describe um, the novel Base Notes, you're going to want to read it right away. So first, let me introduce the special guest. Laura Elena Donnelly, I went over Laura's name a few times, so we're good, um, is the author of Base Notes, which I'm here to ask all questions about, but is also the author of the Nebula, Lambda, and Locust-nominated trilogy, trilogy. I hope I say this right, Laura, but correct me if I'm wrong, the Amber Luff Dossier. Oh! <laughs> we went over my name, and then you hit the book title, and we're like, Oh no, um, it's okay. This is like one of the most commonly asked questions about this this book. It's called the Amber Lowe dossier. Um, there's actually a YA author whose name is Amber Lowe, which I did not know when I was writing this book, but she gave me a great little mnemonic device for it, which is it's low like dough. Oh, low like dough. Oh, I like that rhyming pattern. Okay, thank you. Um, we've talked about um, her MFA teaching at Sarah Lawrence College um, and my affinity towards that college, as well as catapult classes in New York. I just have to ask, what are catapult classes? So catapult is like, um, they do a lot of short-term workshops um, in creative writing and like fiction and poetry and memoir. Um, and so you can take like a six-week class with them or like a four-week class. They might do like one day workshops um, and they kind of build themselves as like an alternative to getting like a full-time MFA. Um, so I've taught some creative writing classes with them. Oh, okay. Shout out to Catapult. Uh, and the Alpha SF slash F slash H workshop for young writers. Basically this whole interview, I'm just going to have you break down your bio for us now. But what is, is it science fiction I'm assuming? Yeah, science okay. fiction, fantasy and horror. Oh, okay. Well, this kind of all makes sense where base notes is centering around. Um, in the summer, she wears the cobra and the canary. I'm assuming this is a perfume. Okay. Yeah, it's a perfume by imaginary authors. Oh, and then in the winter, how do you pronounce it? Nuda florum? Oh, yeah, okay. it's not very fancy. Perfume. It's really beautiful. Oh, and then others in between. So <laughs> a lot of scents happening. And that's where we're going to go right away after I get, you know, through this other element of the bio that I'm really questioning and curious. So she lives on the grounds of the old Hamilton estate. Um, so 
do you actually live in an estate or is this i was i was so drawn i'm like wait Laura lives in an estate in Manhattan. What's going I on? I lived in an estate. I would turn the camera to show you my my like living slash dining room slash also kitchen, um, but it's super messy, so we're not going to do that. Uh, but we live in Hamilton Heights, which is a neighborhood in Harlem that is on Alexander Hamilton's old estate. And we actually live very close to his house, which is still here, and you can tour it. It's been moved twice, so it's not in the same place that it used to be um they moved it the first time with horses and wagons the second time using like you know backhoes and trailers um but we live kind of where the old chicken coop used to be <laughs> like they have a map of the estate at the museum uh that's in the basement of the house so we went and looked at it and sort of found our apartment sort of where the chickens used to live is where we are oh wow no that's what i love about manhattan though is even in Washington Heights, there's, I'm not going to remember the family, but there's also an estate in Washington Heights and Inwood. The Morris Jumel Mansion is up yes. in Washington Heights, which is actually, so this is very fun to me. Yeah. Um, Aaron Burr married the widow uh, of the Morris Jumel family. And his house is on a hill that's like slightly higher than the house that Hamilton's house is on. I'm sorry, if you can hear my cat, she has those fluent pet buttons that she presses to talk. Uh, and she keeps pressing the all done button for some reason. She's staring at me going, all done, all done. Maybe she's like, stop recording this podcast and play with me. Yeah, uh, she, she wants some attention, but that's okay. <laughs> so anyway, Aaron Burr married this widow who had an estate on a hill slightly higher than Hamilton's house. Um, so that he could, I assume, look down on Hamilton's house from his new mansion. Yeah, um, some, yeah you can go tour that one too. Yeah, some ego play. Well, masculinity came, came in a lot of forms during the revolutionary period. <laughs> um, but I also just love that um, you have a small mask and mantle tabby. Well, the cat made her appearance pretentiously named after a bitter Italian aperitif. So what is your cat's name? Her name is Koki, um, oh. or Koki Americano, um, which always is fun at the vets because we go in. I should have known this. As someone with a name that regularly gives people a little bit of pause, I should have been like, we need to name the cat something easy to pronounce. But instead we named her Koki and we go in and they go, uh, Kachi? Coochie? <laughs> Coochie. Um, that's the best one <laughs> yeah but her name was Koki americano and um when we first got her i posted a bunch of photos of her on instagram and tagged them all Koki americano which is why i am now followed by the like italian liquor brand that makes Koki americano it's a good uh instagram marketing brand like, influencer for them i would love a sponsorship i think you should okay the reason that she's named this so i am now I don't know. Do you post the videos of this on YouTube? I do. Or so this is going to be intriguing. It kind of looks like Lars holding a whip. <laughs> I just realized as I brought it on camera, I was like, oh, this looks bad. This is, this is our cat's favorite toy. It's sort of like rainbow suede strips on the end of a stick. We call it her spaghetti stick. But it does look a little not like a cat toy. 
Um, no, I thought maybe this was like the BDSM performance art. Like <laughs> wherever you want to go, Laura, to promote your book base notes, I am following. It's relevant, right? It feels relevant. It does. Uh, it does. So like what I love first is I was saying to Laura, Caitlin Starling, who I've had the pleasure of interviewing. So listen to that episode. Um, met, recommended, Laura, your book, because it does have very similar dark academia vibes. I was really intrigued because I'm a Stephen Sondheim fan and Caitlin went into the Sweeney Todd relevance. And I'm like, wait, wait, there's a novel that has that type of cannibalistic murder type genre thing going on. And yeah, I'm just so intrigued. First, just what inspired, not even maybe the narrative, but just inspired your love of sense and following this as a pathway um I, I feel like my interest in perfume kind of crept up on me um I don't even really remember how I got started on this I can't remember if it was discovering imaginary authors which is like a niche perfumery that creates perfumes based on novels that don't exist so like they invent authors and novels um and then create perfumes to sort of evoke these fictional pieces of fiction. Um, and I can't remember if I discovered them and started getting into perfume or if I read this article by Jude Doyle um, called like my, my search for the great American perfume or my quest for the great American perfume. That was all about how like historically American perfumes had been super clean and like hygienic and not really intriguing in the way that a lot of um, European classic perfumes could be. Uh, like they didn't have any sort of like animalic or funky or musky notes. Mm. They were all about like smelling clean. Um, and so I, I read this article, I started getting interested in this perfume house um, and I just started ordering samplers. And this was back in like, probably the winter of 2014, maybe like early spring 2015. Um, it no, you know what? It was before that because I started researching perfumes while I was writing Amberlow because a lot of people were wearing perfume or wearing like scented products. Um, or I'd be like historical men's hair pomade. What did it smell like? And um, I had to be able to describe compelling sense and so I was looking into a lot of like vintage perfume and like what what kinds of scents different kinds of people wore mm -hmm. and I started to get really interested um and actually the first set of samples that I bought was from Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab which is like a um, super nerdy dark sexy sort of company that does a lot they do a lot of like perfumes inspired by uh like lupercalia or like the sandman comics you know like very <laughs> weird weird sexy nerdy stuff um and so i ordered some samples from them and then was off to the races but it was like i didn't care about perfume as a sort of like industry or entity necessarily it was like oh perfume as something that my characters wear or like i need to know about this 
not for me or my own enjoyment, but because it's sort of like a piece of my writing research. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I was like, actually, I'm really interested in this. <laughs> it crept up on me. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily that you wanted to find everything about Coco Chanel or like, okay, you weren't trying no, to think of all the French perfumery history. No, it was much more like, okay, I have a character who's giving another character a gift of perfume in this scene. What kind of, <laughs> sorry, she's laid down on her button and is rolling around. Um, so I have this scene where a character is giving another character a gift of perfume. And I was like, what kind of perfume would, you know, this very educated, wealthy man be giving to this woman who like, it had to be a gift that made her feel a little like not good enough. Um, but also sort of like as an open door to like, this is what your life could be like, you know, if you spend time with this person. Um, so it, it was like, if she wears cheap perfume, what is that cheap perfume? And if he is giving her better perfume, what is that better perfume? Um, and something about writing this scene just sort of, I think, opened a door to me to be like, wow, there's so, there's so many messages in scent. Um, and it, it informs so much about how we experience the world. And actually, so I had COVID in May and I lost my sense of smell for probably like a month. And it was really, really horrible. It felt, it made the world feel like I was living in a really realistic computer simulation, um, which was incredibly uncanny and upsetting because I couldn't smell anything. And I was like, oh, you don't realize how much your sense of smell is informing your experience of your life until you don't have it anymore. And then you're like, oh my God, everything feels fake. And I feel like I can't touch anything. Even if I'm touching stuff, it doesn't feel real because it doesn't have scent. Yeah, that makes sense. And I love how right away in your novel with Base Notes that it's, I was saying to Laura, it's this very immersive experience where in your um, intro prologue, um, we, the reader, are instantly brought into the scene of the crime or what seems like a very uh, murder crime scene. We don't know exactly what's happening, right? We're just given a little bad taste. Things. Bad things are happening. Bad things are happening. We know a body's being maybe buried. Um, and... Right away, though, scent is so instrumental, even before your intro, because we get a really, I thought, intriguing, I don't see this a lot in a novel, the base notes Soli Flore discovery set. And we have the heroes of the novel, we have the villains, we have the incidentals, but we get really the notes of what they desire in scent and what they would desire in a cologne perfume. Um, so I thought it's so interesting to really connect their scent to their personality. And it makes so yeah. much sense. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, guys. No, like, go ahead for it. Yeah, yeah. So this was actually, um, this opening of the Sola Flores uh, is like an element that, is it it's it's not supposed to do anything it's just supposed to be there for readers to experience it i guess but the thought is like um there's a broader formal conceit about the book and the way that it works and the way that it is sort of like enfolding the reader 
into it and making them sort of like complicit and close with the narrator uh, that that the Sola Flores set at the beginning is is like the first hint that you get that this book is not necessarily just that you're going to be reading a story that there is like um there's like a participatory part um where like you as the reader are engaging with the text in like slight a slightly closer way than just as someone consuming the story yeah and i love how it works because consensually i'm thinking wait did i agree to being part of this murder scene and not having that third person observation really breaking down into first person right away made me uncomfortable in an exciting way like i realized oh this is going to be a really inventive murder mystery like there's something there's something even off about how you're telling the narrative in new ways like it's not and what i love is it doesn't follow the breadcrumbs of step one, step two, step three of putting together the murder scene, which, you know, I'm sure too, you love those novels as well. Like where you can kind of expect, okay, there's going to be a big climactic moment. All the revelations happen, but your novel really shifts away from that traditional pathway and the traditional chronology. So like, was that, I'm assuming you were really, thinking you're going to kind of go off the trail of how to tell a murder? Um, I think one of the big inspirations for this book, two, two of the big inspirations for this book uh, were um, Donna Tartt's The Secret History and also Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley. And both of those are books where like the whodunit part is not, not the most interesting part not the big reveal it's sort of more about like why done it and mm. also what comes after like the murder is not the the like linchpin of the whole story i mean it is in a way but it's not a linchpin in the sort of like solving the murder is the big question yeah. the question is more like once you've murdered someone what does that mean and like what are you going to do about it uh so I think one of the reasons that it's not like a one, two, three, here's the murder, here's the big climactic fallout from the murder, it's much more like, all right, this person murders people and now things are going to go wrong for them. Yeah, and I just recently, a few months ago when Death on the Nile came out based on Agatha Christie's novel, it was actually really interesting to watch. Well, not just because Army Hammer was in it, but <laughs> it's all, you know, I forgot about that. Um, but yeah, which, yeah, I guess does relate to this narrative. Um, but I, I was really, it was so interesting to see a film that followed the generic murder mystery because I hadn't seen it in a while. Right. Like there, we've, we've had so many inventive ways to tell a murder mystery that of course, though, I love that Agatha Christie style. But like you said, the murder is the usually it's in the title. Usually um, we're trying to figure out the clue like suspects, like who did what in what room. And you're like the clue board game. You have your paper and you're just trying to detail everything you know about the case. What I really love, though, is how New York City itself. And I know Lars coming from New York City. Uh, talked about Hamilton Heights. Um, 
New York is actually a really interesting character in a way. And I was kind of curious because like every thing that Vic, our protagonist does is not just that they're in New York, but really like smelling everything in say the opera house or smelling things on the streets in the transit system. Um, the restaurants, right? So I'm assuming New York, it really had to, it plays such a role as a center for your novel, for the like, smell. First of all, first of all, if you're in New York and you're walking around in the streets, you cannot avoid smelling. Like it's, it's sometimes you want to avoid smelling. Uh, you cannot. <laughs> um, but also this novel is based on a short story that I wrote in 2015, right after moving to New York, like the month that I moved to New York, I was supposed to be working on a short story for a charity anthology. Um, and the theme was orange. And I had relatively recently read that Jude Doyle article that's all about like clean American perfumes. And one of the one of the like notes um, cited as being really common in American perfumes was orange blossom because it smells so fresh and citrusy and like clean. Um, and I, I was like, oh, I could use that as part of this like orange theme and uh, got the idea for the story literally in Pittsburgh. Like the morning I was leaving Pittsburgh, I just finished teaching at a workshop there and I had my suitcase in the back of my car and was moving to New York City. And I was like, oh, okay, it can be like about a story about a perfumer. Um, and that was kind of all I had was that it was a story about a perfumer and someone who was involved with that perfumer and I got to New York and I had to write this story and I was like well I'm just gonna set it in New York because I mean if it's about perfume it kind of I don't want to say it has to be set in one of the sort of major metropolitan areas of the world but and there are a lot of perfumers who aren't in the major metropolitan areas of the world but I think there was something about the the like huge economic gap between the characters and sort of like the the like performative wealth the performative class that felt very new yorky to me and like having just moved here with this character who had also kind of just moved here and was trying to figure out where they fit into this whole situation um i ended up writing it set in new york like right when i first moved here and so it was very interesting after having lived here for like six or seven years to be like, okay, I'm going to revisit this. And also the character has now been here a little longer. Um, like the short story takes place before the novel uh, takes place. It's sort of like a prequel and um, revisiting this and being like, okay, now that you've lived in New York for a while and have had much more like intimate experiences with the way that it can be, so horrible but also so magical um it's like it it allowed me to explore with more intensity the same themes that i found really interesting in the short story yeah and i really have been connecting a lot to your novel based on well memory and we'll talk about right sense and memory there's so much written in psychology um about how sense can trigger your past memories and it's used in therapy a lot. So 
were you, you know, did you have to do a lot of research to really kind of connect the psychology of your characters to the intersection between sense and memory? So the intersection between scent and memory in the book actually came because I knew that I wanted to turn this short story into something longer. And I knew that I wanted it to have like a little bit more of a speculative element because the original short story didn't. It was pure, like weird sort of psychosexual thriller uh I don't even know what genre I would call it. It was published in a horror magazine. So I guess we'll call it horror. Um, but I was like, okay, for a longer novel, I want to introduce a speculative element of some kind. What would it be? Um, and like what, what magic or speculative element feels most adjacent to perfume? And because I... Like I already was familiar with the idea that scent is like a really strong memory trigger. I mean, like you don't even have to read research mm -hmm. to know that, you know, like we experience that all the time where we'll be walking around and go, hmm, so the, the smell that I just smelled wherever it came from reminded me so strongly of something I hadn't thought of in forever or like this smells just like something from my childhood. Um, so like I hadn't read that much research about it, but I just knew it for a fact uh, as like part of my experience of living as a human in the world and being someone who has a pretty strong sense of smell or at least like I think about my sense of smell a lot. I value it, I use it a lot. Um, and it's very startling to me when I find out that other people like don't, or, like can't smell that the milk is sour or like don't notice a smell in the air um, or like they're drinking a wine and they're like, I can't, it just smells like wine. I'm like what you mean you can't smell all this other stuff going on um so when I wanted to turn it into a novel I was like all right I need a speculative element and perfume and scent in general is like such a strong memory trigger and uh I don't know if this is really like a spoiler but you know the short story ends with you know, someone getting turned into a perfume. And I was like, well, we're keeping that. We're keeping the people perfumes. Uh, <laughs> and so I was like, all right, if you're making a perfume with a human body and the speculative element has to do with memory, like how are those things connected? Like, why do you need a human body? How, what kind of memories is that smell going to trigger? Um, and then we were kind of off to the races. I don't know if that answered your question. At oh all. yeah, absolutely. And well, just for everyone out there, base notes. I mean, I'm going back to my time um, in Paris when I actually went to, oh, I'm trying to remember that large museum. But it was just. There's a lot of museums in Paris. I, I know. I know. This. And there was one, well, there's the like perfumery museum. And they actually have you like make your own perfume and you learn about base notes. And actually what's interesting is when you mention orange, I remember learning orange is actually the one, the scent that doesn't stay the longest because it kind of, it diffuses quick, quickly in the air, which is why I'm really kind of into essential oils and my diffuser. And usually I have to put lemongrass because that has more of like a longer stay, but I do love the orange scent. Uh, I like that clean, you know, fresh scent. But um, I guess base notes, right? Are they 
are they the ones that they have they're the ones that will carry the other scents that are lighter that really can't exist by themselves they're they're more about sort of the architecture of the perfume um so there's like i'm trying to remember now there's longevity which is how long the scent lasts there's sillage which is how far it is sort of like projecting um and and the the sort of like base note middle note top note is not exactly about how long each note lasts like the longevity of each note um though it can be like i've seen it talked about this way but i've also seen it talked about not as um not as the dry down so the dry down is when you put a perfume on and it's like this is what you smell first and then that goes away and then you smell something else and then that can go away and it goes through the perfume goes through a bunch of chemical changes and it dries down to whatever it's sort of like final form is um and then it eventually totally breaks down and goes away the top notes the middle notes and the base notes um or in french the the head notes and the heart notes and the base notes which is what we call them in the book like at the beginning of every chapter it's like note de tête note de cœur note de fond um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh that's more about like when you smell the perfume it is about where in the structure of the scent you notice that particular note so like if you had something that had like a lemongrass top note lemongrass is so bright and piercing that you might smell it first but it could also be depending on how the perfume is put together it could be kind of slipped in between some other top note and like something something deeper it could also be like a base note it it's really sort of about how how the perfumer wants you to experience the scent um and less about like what order you smell things in. Mm -hmm, I feel mm -hmm. like I'm not really describing this well because it's one of those things that's very hard to describe about about the experience of smelling something. Like it's a it's a sense that kind of defies description in a lot of ways. It's very slippery, and I think that's because it's so visceral. You're just like, oh, I'm smelling all this stuff, and my brain is like interpreting it mm -hmm. um, in a way that is beyond my ability to talk about. Yeah, and that's why it's a chemistry. I mean um chemists go in and they become perfumers and there's yeah there's so much to it that's why um i love though that you chose this chemistry art the i would call it an art this art of science with scent and um how that develops throughout your novel but also why i think it works so well for the twist and i mean you gave us a little spoiler but um I think we kind of know there's going to be something tied to perfume and death uh, from the beginning. But I'm kind of curious, um, you know, and I will, I'll pivot this into your novel because I think it, it does play a role. Like when people, they don't realize that art that you so, I think, expertly described, Laura, which is the base, the middle, the top, that like what you smell right away is not going to last, but there's going to be something else. Even when you put on body lotion and like, depends how much you lather on and right. There's a whole, where you put it, the trigger points. Um, 
And the same goes for when someone sprays perfume cologne like five times and they're like, wait, but I can't smell it right away. But they're not realizing everyone around them is smelling it in a more intense way. And I think we've all had that experience. This just happened to me like at a restaurant where someone walks by and I'm like, whoa, that really has hit me. Like, and not in a, there's the walk by someone on the street and you're like, oh, that's really pleasant. Like, I love those moments. Um, Even with hair gel, you're right. That has a scent. Shampoo. um, And yeah, that overpowering sense is not always pleasant. Um, So, you know, did you enjoy playing around with how the characters, especially Vic, was going to... um, be using their art of perfume in a way to kind of intensify how they saw personalities of the people around them? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now a message from the Gay and Lesbian Review. Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Hemrick, the publisher of the GNLR, here with a special offer just for you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the GNLR, let me provide a little background. The GLR is a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features such as artists' profiles and the popular art memo column. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. For example, the theme of the current issue is Queens and Kings, and it features an article by Andrew Holleran about Truman Capote's relationships with glamorous women, the woman he called his swans. Now for the special offer. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven issues instead of six. Visit GLReview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. Click subscribe and enter promo code I-T-B-R for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archive issues of the magazine. Hi, it's Mary from True Crime and Academia. You're like me. You love personalized merch and you love shopping local. So here is one of my favorite local vendors to buy from. It's Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. My friend Mandy makes the most incredible personalized crochet goods and decor for your home. Spooky season is coming up. She has some of the coolest Halloween designs. So go follow her on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. Again, that's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. 
and place your order with her today. I think it's less about intensifying personalities and more about like the world is legible to Vic through scent mm-hmm. more than any other sense. And so I think noticing the way that people smell is going to be like one of the first things that they notice. And also noticing what people have done to change their smell. Um, like the characters who wear scent um, or interact with scent in some way. I think, I don't know if this is explicit in the text, but in, in my head, and I think kind of in the way that Vic interacts with these other characters, I'm specifically thinking of Bo, who is like uh, a tailor that Vic befriends in the sort of like calculated befriending of other down and out broke millennial artists um, to use them and their talents for ill. Uh, Vic meets this tailor named Bo, and one of the first things that Vic notices about him is that he's wearing perfume and I think as like a perfumer Vic is really keyed into like this person made a choice to put a scent on their body and what does that say about them first of all Vic appreciates it because you know not a lot of people wear perfume these days or not like you know people wear all kinds of scented products but I think people are like oh perfume is like fancy or like I can't wear this because you know, it will give people migraines, even if you're wearing like insanely scented body lotion, whatever. Um, I think like we're in a time where, you know, I have no evidence to back this up. This is purely my feelings about it. Uh, like in the past, everything was scented and people like bathed in perfume and like there was a, a lot of sort of like social cachet attached to perfume. There still is social cachet attached to perfume. Basically what I'm saying is that I feel based on zero evidence that people don't wear perfume as much as they used to, um, used to being some nebulous point in the past. Again, absolutely making all of this up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, probably this is Vic inside of my head being like, people don't appreciate my art like you know they should. Um, so when, when someone is actually wearing perfume, um, especially an interesting perfume, Vic is like, Mm. I, this is something I can appreciate about, about you. Um, and even when people are not wearing perfume, so like Jane, who is the love interest, um, isn't wearing perfume when Vic meets her for the first time, but she is wearing like, she's used like peppermint soap and her body lotion smells like coconut Mm -hmm. and she's working in a bar and she's got like, you know, I think she has like a vinegar shrub like on her fingers so they smell a little sour and she's like sweaty because she's been at work all day and so Vic smells all these things about her and also notices that she's not wearing perfume and it's mm. kind of like oh you don't like they're talking about it and Vic is like oh you don't wear perfume and Jane is like no you know I don't but my partner does um, but it's basically like the first thing that that Vic notices about people is what they smell like and whether they meant to smell like that or not. Yeah. I love though that you even kind of have brought up gender and scent because I think it's so fascinating that like learning that cologne really is just kind of this masculine identifier 
or to like just not say you have perfume on and it kind of reminds me of like how now there's all like the male the male scented sections of bath and body works or right there's these men's line for shampoo even and it's like wait but this is it's still perfume. I don't, yeah it's still perfume cologne, and, means, cologne but, means like a concentration of scent it does not mean man perfume it yes. means how much scent is in the perfume yeah and I mean, sometimes I really stay away from some of the more like male identified because it's musk and uh, the sa- like I like sandalwood, but sometimes it's, whoa, this is intense. Um, I think we've all smelled like some of those products and they're not always pleasant again, but everyone's gonna, right? If someone's wearing that and you smell it, um, you're probably like a lot of the public would attach it to um, I don't know, something with masculinity. So I'm really curious how you really look into gender relations and sexual relations through scent. Because I thought that was such an interesting angle that you bring up throughout the novel. Yeah. Um, wow. I'm trying to make the connection between like, yeah, I decided this was going to be like a super queer novel. How does... How does that play into the fact that it's also a novel about perfume? And now I'm like questioning a lot of my own sort of like, did you do this unconsciously? Did you, cause I certainly wasn't like, yeah, queer people and perfume. Like it's all about gender performance and et cetera. Um, but it totally, there are parts of the book that totally are about, you know, this is the way that a man smells. Um, they're like the, the villains air quotes of this book are all sort of like, older very wealthy men who work in like corporate finance um who have really strong ideas about like this is what a man is supposed to smell like and vic who has worked for all of them at one point or another doing like custom perfume blends is always kind of pushing back on it um and part of actually what i learned doing research for this book is uh there's like a sub community of perfume people called frag bros or like fragrance bros uh (laughs) And they actually are really into perfumes that they call beast mode perfumes, which are actually like big florals. They're very like sticky, sweet, and overpowering. They're very like, you will know the minute that I walk into the room because you will smell me. Um, But it's not like that vetiver or sandalwood. I mean, a lot of them will be like sandalwood and rose, right? But like, it's not like the smell of Old Spice. Mm -hmm. It's like the smell of a boudoir, basically. but also I think just like a lot of the scents that Vic puts together are not gendered really. And they're also not ways that people would want to smell, I guess. They're mm. they're like nerd perfumes, right? So they're they're like, I don't want to evoke femininity. I want to evoke wet pavement or mm. like you know, burnt rubber. Like I want to evoke a a memory or a sensation or like a an aesthetic and not I want to evoke sexy or happy or girly or manly. It's mm-hmm. like I want to evoke for you an image. Um, which is like some of my favorite perfumes are I want to evoke an image. I want to evoke a moment. I want to evoke a feeling. Uh 
which I think, and it's like a story, right? You're, you're telling a story about yourself or about your feelings um, by choosing to smell a certain mm. way. Um, and some people choose to use that power to say something about their gender. Yeah, no, I think there really is a queerness about sense. Like, especially the more you were talking about, um, like Vic not expecting a certain smell from, you know, a male body that I'm raising a lot of questions in my mind that, oh, that's right. You can really sense really, you know, can um, speak to your identity, speak to how you want to portray yourself. And yeah, I think there's a whole, there's a whole work done about, there should be a, someone who like just looks into queering uh, perfumery. I mean, but, yeah. there are a couple people. One of the things that I read while I was doing research for this and like on my computer quick trying to find it so that I can remember the actual title, but it's an academic paper. Yes, here we go. It's called Skank or the Queer Fascination with Animalic Notes. Um, and it's an academic paper about like queerness and like sexuality and uh, like the abject and how this translates into sort of like queer perfumery and its fascination with like the nastier smells in a perfumer's catalog, um, which is what Vic is all about, right? Vic is like, mm, uh, you know, like perfume that's made from real, real civet, right? Scraped from the real testicles of a real cat. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, Vic is very into bodily, nasty uh, smells that make you go, Ugh, yeah, <laughs> into it. Yeah. Well, and I love that you brought up Patricia Highsmith because I think it really helps to think about um, when I think about Patricia Highsmith, I always think also of Hitchcock and that like psychosexual, especially because of Strangers on a Train, which is, is adapted right from Highsmith. And when you watch a Hitchcock film, what I always love is the visceral of how each scene really portrays scent. Like you really are, even take Strangers on a Train and these two men are so connected bodily on their passenger seat automatically I'm thinking, okay, well, what are they picking up? Is there musk tones? And like Hitchcock was so interested in those psychological moments of the frame of the camera picking this up. So, you know, when I'm looking into your novel, it makes sense that you're so, like you were such a Patricia Highsmith lover. And like, is there any other maybe expected, unexpected inspiration for base notes that, you know, you want to reveal to us all. Oh, man. <laughs> um, unexpected inspiration for base notes. I mean, this is not even unexpected. This is actually like maybe the deepest and most motivating and inspiring connection is that when I was really little, not really little, like, but definitely a child, Mm -hmm. My dad told me about this book, Perfume, the Story of a Murderer. And he gave me all the details of the plot of Perfume, the Story of a Murderer. And I did not read it until I was working on the short story that became Base Notes. But I knew about it, like broad strokes, for a long time. 
And so when I started to conceive of the short story, I was like, oh, maybe this can be in conversation with this book that I have not read that I guess I should probably read before I write this story. Um, so my first couple of weeks in New York were spent reading Perfume the Story of a Murderer on the subway as I went around looking for an apartment. Um, and, and that is all about nasty smells. I mean, it's about beautiful smells too, but it opens with the main character being born and abandoned as an infant in a fish market. In, and it's like fish guts and blood and like dirty diapers. And it's just like, it, it's horrible. Um, but the main character, Jean-Louis, like, doesn't distinguish really between good and bad smells. It's just like all intense. All the smells are really intense and he's smelling them all the time. Uh, and so when I was working on this book, I was like, okay, this is like perfume, but not, it's not like a retelling, but it is a book that is very much in the tradition of books about like super smellers who don't really distinguish between good and bad and like the art for them is the highest pursuit you know uh, you know above and beyond the morality of murdering people they're like yeah I know murder is bad but sometimes you need to do it to get the right elements for your artwork <laughs> oh my it's almost like American Psycho <laughs> yeah actually, kind of American Psycho was a, a movie and a book that people kept telling me like, oh, it's like this. And I hadn't read or watched it um, because I really don't like horror movies. Oh, okay. My mom had been like, I couldn't even get through like the first 15 minutes. I turned it off and I was like, I don't know. It'll probably freak me out. I probably don't want to watch it. I don't probably don't want to read the book. And uh, about four months ago, I think my partner and I actually sat down and watched American Psycho. Uh, and I was like, this is hysterically funny and I love every minute of it. Um, but also my partner was like, your book is like a cross between American Psycho and Francis Ha. And so we did watch Francis Ha while I was writing it because it's all about like, you know, the hustle. It's all about the hustle and trying to pursue your dream and getting sidetracked by, you know, trying to keep up with your wealthy friends and like trying to make it in New York and and feeling this pressure to like you know be special and succeed and be like a be a superstar or like be 30 under 30 you know like to mm -hmm. the insane pressure that everyone who lives here who is an artist feels to a survive and b thrive yeah well and because I brought up the cinematic, I mean, there's one moment that just sticks out to me because of how, again, realistic, how you blend realism and also fantasy in your novel. And that's um, the bar scene when Vic is seeing um, the bartender, basically the men ogling her. And then I think they yes. throw something into oh. her blouse yeah um oh, like a cherry there's so many bar scenes in this book like every scene in this book takes place at a bar um but yeah the scene where the the creepy guy drops a cherry down mm -hmm. down jane's cleavage um yes what about it it's well no just that like it really shows a lot i think in that moment of how vic responds internally like processing for us all you know 
the disgust she feels towards these men. And like, there's a lot of, I love that you start to build that, um, you build the anticipation for what's to come with Bic, like kind of already planting the seeds for us. So, but again, it's so cinematic, like very visceral. And I just hope that this comes into some cinematic form, something visual happens to base notes. Can you hint at anything? I would love for that to happen. I was actually talking to a friend uh, who's kind of like tangential to the movie and TV business and was like, who should I send it to? Like, who are some producers that might be interested? And he was like, you know, I think this would be a great HBO Max show. And now, of course, it's like, well, too bad. (laughs) Too bad. It would have been a great HBO Max show, but not anymore. Um, Yeah, I would love for that to happen. Um, if anyone out there is looking to adapt a super queer, extremely murdery, very like visceral, colorful, mm-hmm. prestige television show and or movie. Yeah. So kind of me. like Midsummer. I, I feel it was... I don't like horror movies. Oh, it's so good though. <laughs> See, I love horror movies. Um, but I think it's what A twenty four? Yes. It, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it falling in line with that. I would love an A24 adaptation. Call me A24. Yeah. Wait, why not HBO Max? Well, because now they're like, oh, we're not going to do scripted content. They're like, you know, their whole pivot, everyone is freaking out about. Were you not on Twitter for this? No, I was not. (laughs) I'm like, what happened? HBO Max merged with Discovery Plus? I, I think Discovery Plus. And they were like, we're going to move away from scripted original content to like unscripted reality TV. Cause they were like, our audience, they had a very strange slide in their shareholders meeting or whatever. That was like girls, teenage girls, like unscripted, like real world, mm-hmm. relatable TV they had oh they like genre dumbs big air quotes here um and then they were like teenage boys and they were like and they're the discovery plus audience teenage boys like scripted drama with like action and and they're into like fandoms uh, big air quotes again and like every nerd that i knew was like do you know who built the concept of fandom it was not teenage boys. Like it was yeah. not teenage boys at all. Do you know about fan fiction? That is not teenage boys either. Like I'm sure there are teenage boys involved in that, but they are not the people who are like driving it uh, or like driving fanishness or fandoms. So it was just a very strange, like admittedly, I'm in my little Twitter bubble of like writers and nerds and mm-hmm, and people mm-hmm. who would be mad that HBO Max was going to pivot towards like reality TV. Uh, but it does feel like more than just my Twitter circle, we're absolutely perplexed and confused by HBO Max, which has been a place where so much really good original content has being has been like being produced and mm-hmm. and put out into the world. Yeah. Like Art Lag Means Death and um, oh, there's Euphoria. Like, yeah, yeah. And the, the Gilded the- Age the teens who are going on a road trip to get an abortion like there's just a bunch of like weird gay 
strange original stuff that has been on HBO Max. Um, and it's all been like beautiful and really well produced and has done really well. And they were like, you know what people want is not the stuff that has been doing really well for us. They want like, yeah, unscripted reality TV content. Mm. Well, we'll see where that heads. <laughs> yeah, that is why, too bad, so sad. I do not think that Base Notes will end up at HBO Max. Oh, no. Well, I mean, and I'm trying to think, is it F-Boy Island? Is that HBO Max or Hulu? I, I don't know. I can't keep it. I don't know. Each of them, each streaming platform has basically the same. Love Island, F-Boy They're all <laughs> the unscripted air quotes. Um, but we could get into a whole conversation because sometimes I deep dive the housewives and yeah. sure, it's unscripted. I feel like I could, I could like fit in better at work if I watched Real Housewives, uh, but I just have no desire to watch Real Housewives. Well, if you ever get into the rabbit hole, let me know, because I will. I'll chat with you about it. But, you know, I was saying to Laura before I hit record that, um, you know, if you love the reading experience, which I always do, but sometimes I really love listening now that we all are kind of in our, you know, pandemic trained audio depending how much you turn to audio during the pandemic i love now audiobooks and i was saying how the performer avi right i think and you said avi's last name i believe is. it's okay okay yeah. yeah how well done avi does reading you know through vic's point of view it's such a great audiobook so you know shout out to avi <laughs> Shout out to Avi. I specifically was like, I would love to have Avi record this audiobook um, because I had heard them do, I think they did KM Sparrow's Docile. I can't, no, maybe not Docile. I know I listened to some other stuff that they had done and I was like, this is exactly the voice that I want. Mm -hmm. um, but sort of like occupying that, that like a little bit of vocal fry gender ambiguous like deep but has like a higher register um i like i had a very particular sound in mind um and and that sound was like i heard avi doing some other voice acting and it's like this is it this is exactly the sound that i need for this book so i was very very excited that they agreed to do it yeah it's wonderful that you got that input um so exciting to actually see it all come to fruition um so oh, everyone please laura this was wonderful i you know want to give away all the spoilers but i'm not i'm gonna hold off but i'm gonna hold up base notes such a beautiful cover um by laura elena donnelly get your hands on it at any bookstore um i always put the link to bookshop.org um yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Support the independent bookstores. Um, I have the audible audible link too. So if you want to listen to Avi perform it and find out everything about Laura in our show notes, um, her amazing headshot, which we could have a whole discussion about, but I love how kick-ass it is. Um, thank you, Laura. Thank you for joining me. Um, yeah. And everyone out there, Definitely add this to your must list of queer meets dark academic meets murder mystery, thriller, psychosexual, 
I'm sure there's more. It has all of the spicy things in it. Um, It does. Oh, speculative fiction, Laura said. Yeah. There we go. It's got a little little something for everybody in there. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you so much. And I can't wait to have you back on, Laura, for your next novel, which I know you're working on. And we're going to finish our writing projects. (laughs) All right. I'm holding you to that. I know. I'll hold you to it, too. That's what we have to do as writers. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Lauren. Thank you, everyone out there. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to the fall season. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is a public humanities podcast where we interview writers, scholars, performers, and artists. Episodes air on Mondays. I am Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I'm so happy to welcome my team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Kimberly Dallas, our editor, and an amazing fall group of interns. Thank you to this team. Please follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Easy to remember. Our Twitter is at Ivory Boiler Room. And we have a whole new design for our Patreon. It is called the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe because you're joining us and eavesdropping on our conversations that are unedited videos of all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes as if you're eavesdropping in a cafe overhearing the conversation. Well, talking about overhearing a conversation, hi, Mary. Hello, Andrew, and hello, everyone. I'm Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime and Academia, a podcast, well, a true crime podcast that is focused mainly on the crimes committed by and to those in the field of academia. Episodes air every Tuesday at noon. You can follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia and on Twitter at TC in Academia because Twitter hates extra characters, as we all know. And as Andrew alluded to earlier, we have a Patreon, and True Crime and Academia has exclusive bonus episodes for subscribers. As a true crime enthusiast, I don't necessarily like to pigeonhole my true crime interests. So over on the Patreon, I cover some of the more high-profile cases not related to academia, such as the murder of JonBenet Ramsey, and the case of Casey Anthony. So if you want access to videos like that, go over to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber. Thank you all for joining us. And here's to an amazing fall season. Bye. Bye everyone.